Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. It's always our privilege and joy to come to the Word of God to be fed and to be strengthened and healed each Lord's Day. And today I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. We'll be reading verses... 18 to 23, Colossians chapter 1, verses 18 to 23. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. This is in the middle of a section where the Apostle Paul is speaking of the glory of Jesus Christ, and we pick it up in the middle. He, referring to Jesus, is also head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you will give us this morning faith and hope, and that you will use this scripture to cause those who do not believe to believe, and those who do believe to continue in this faith until through death they are brought into your presence. Now, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of every one of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, this is the beginning, or this is the middle of a section where uh, the Apostle Paul is dealing with a particular church that is... We don't know what the heresy was, what the false teaching was that was in the church, but whatever the false teaching was, the remedy right at the beginning of the letter is to speak of the glory of Jesus Christ. And so in the middle of him speaking of the glory of Jesus Christ, he says this in verse 18, speaking of Jesus, he says, he is also head of the body, the church. And it's interesting that This is part of the glory of Jesus Christ, that he is head of the body, the church. We don't think of the church as having glory. We think of the church as an obnoxious entity that we have to put up with, right? It's very hard for us to realize the glory of the church. And so when we read over this, we focus on the fact that he is head of the church. And, you know, we hate authority, so we, yeah, he's head of the church. Yeah, he's head of the church. 
and then we've taken our pill and we move on. But what we don't remember is that this is actually in the middle of a section where it's speaking of the glory of Jesus Christ. And so for, for the Holy Spirit to inspire the Apostle Paul to write in the middle of a section on the glory of Christ that he's the head of the church, that must be part of the glory of Jesus that he's the head of the church. And that's, that's interesting, isn't it? How could it glorify Jesus Christ to be the top, the top authority, the governor, the, the Lord of the church, the head of the church? Well, if we remember that the church is the bride of Christ and that Christ is the bridegroom, if I were to tell you that it is my glory, all right, my glory to be head of Mary Lee, all of a sudden it makes more sense, doesn't it, those of you that know Mary Lee? It is my glory to be head of Mary Lee, right? You all with me? Or do you have a contrarian view? Anybody want to dare to say that's not my glory? Well, you think about our marriages and you think of how many men married way above themselves, right? I know every woman here who's married thinks that's true, that her husband married way above himself. So Jesus has glory as the head of the church, and that tells you that the church is a precious thing. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is the people that God has been pleased to give his son. We don't feel this way. We don't feel righteous. We don't feel beautiful. But Jesus is making us beautiful. That's what scripture tells us. He's sanctifying us so that we will be a spotless bride in heaven. Spotless. And so this is how this section begins. He is also head of the body of the church. Listen, if that gives glory to Jesus Christ, then we should love the church. And we say, well, no, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to. I'm not going to love the church because you're in it. And I say, it's a good point. But still love it. I'm not going to love it because you're preaching to me and you're such an idiot. It's like, you've got a point. But love it. Love it. Isn't it beautiful that we are in a church that we love and that we do love this church? Isn't it beautiful? We take these things for granted. If I were to ask, there would be many of you that would talk about having churches where it was, it was just a struggle every single Sunday to go to church. You just could not hardly bear it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm seeing some nods and channeling you. Um, but here, we're not on guard against conflict and and judgmentalism and censoriousness. And, you know, we don't have to have our guard up when we come into this assembly, do we? And the reason is that as God perfects us as individuals, God purifies his bride. And so we have been able to live here for years and see how God is, is purifying us. 
And of course, we all know what we need purification of. Uh, one of the sweetest things I've heard in quite a while about this church was I was talking to Pastor Max a couple of days ago, and he was bragging on the church, and he said, you know, and this is how Max bragged about this church. This is weird, twisted. He said, you know, sometimes when I'm over there in the corner and I just look out over the congregation, he says, there's hardly anybody there that I don't know what their sins are. You know, and you think, is there any more perfect description of, of what most Reformed pastors try not to do than to know the sins of anyone? It's like if somebody comes to confess their sin to them, they'll put up with it, <laughs> you know? But this is what he brags about. Well, why does he brag about it? Well, because if you're a shepherd and your sheep come to you when they're sick and when they've broken their legs and when they have needs... Could there be any greater commendation of a shepherd than that his sheep come to him? And that's what you do with Pastor Max. You go to him all the time. You go to the other pastors all the time with your needs, with your weaknesses. And real shepherds just love that. They just love it. And so the the application here is if it is the glory of Jesus Christ that he said of the church then the church is glorious and that's how we're going to actually end this morning they had no idea what text i was going to preach on and they chose as the well i don't know that actually where's did you choose it in response to the sermon or was it already in the queue it was in the queue. Well, the final hymn is, Glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion, city of our God. Any of you remember this sermon my brother David preached Sunday evening on this one is born in Zion? I've never heard a sermon that was so encouraging to me about the glory of the church. You know, you think about this one is born in Zion. This one is born among the people of God. We think about what a precious gift it is that our children are growing up in the bosom of the church. You know? We can die, and it's okay. They're in the bosom of the church. I remember talking to Jill Crum years ago uh, when I was working with her husband as the pastors of a church. And she talked about Jill has, what, 27 children or something? <laughs> I think she only has 11, but it seems like 29. Anyhow, Jill was saying that when she was pregnant, she loved to sit in the church to have her unborn child under the preaching of the word. Now, I'll grant you, that's, that's weird, right? <laughs> it is weird. But you know what she's saying. That from the moment of conception, her children are bathed in the glory of the bride of Christ. And so we love the church. If this is God's glory to give his son the headship of the church, if Jesus is our bridegroom, if we're the bride, and notice, people, this is the church. This isn't you, okay? Can we get rid of this American individualism? It's not you. I mean, Christ is your head, but it's speaking of the church corporately. And if we don't want to have any part of the church corporately, we refuse to come under the authority of the elders and to come to the table. And We have no part in Christ. There is no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. When you're baptized into Christ, you're baptized into his church. And it's the church that he's sanctifying. It's the church that he died for. It doesn't mean he doesn't, didn't die for you. 
Okay. All right, I'll get off it. Well, now I won't. <laughs> so I used this illustration the first. I want to use it again. So when I, when I became a pastor, I realized that I now had a whole set of problems I'd never had before. And principally the problems were that any time I would speak of the importance of authority in the church, of the glory of the church, of anything, that people would view me as a proprietor, as a merchant, as an entrepreneur, and that the church was my business and that I was promoting you paying my salary. You see that? And so all of a sudden I felt this, uh, this issue that was difficult where I felt people's judgment that I was just one more... Um, uh, merchant, one more, one more rich Christian, one more rich pastor, okay? And so right after I got in the ministry, I'd been at this church a couple of months. It was a town of 1,500 in Wisconsin. And there was this nasty man who was married to a nasty woman and had nasty children. Surprise. And I, when I say nasty, I don't mean that I ever had any fights with them or you know, it was just obvious. They were just this oppressive presence wherever they were. And so one day, this guy set up an appointment. I was kind of trying to, trying to figure out, it's just a couple months into me being at this church, why did this guy want to meet with me? And sure enough, he was nasty. He came in, he sat down in my office, and he proceeded to tell me that he knew that I was cheating on my income taxes. Oh, man. Really, you know, I was earning all of $16,000 and I had all these children. And it's like, if any of you know anything about being poor and the IRS, it's like, if you're poor, the IRS actually gives you money. You, you don't, you know, there was just no way I could have cheated on my taxes. I couldn't have done it, you know. I didn't and I couldn't have, right? And so what I knew from him accusing me of that was that he cheated on his taxes, you know. I didn't realize he'd come in to tell me, ah, I cheat on my taxes. Yeah. So when he got done saying that, I said, well, if you know I cheat on my taxes, you have an obligation to this country to report me to the IRS. Well, that totally took the wind out of his sails. You know, that was the last thing in the world he ever thought I would say to him, you know. And I would try to impress upon him the importance of him reporting me, you know. <laughs> it's like, I would have loved to have gotten audited. They would have looked at me and laughed. Um, but then it got serious. Then we, we got to the real issue. He said, you know, if you keep preaching the way you're preaching, we're not going to pay you. And this was back in a time when I was a complete wuss in the pulpit. I mean, I don't know how anything I preached improved anybody. All I wanted to do was avoid making a horse's patush of myself. That was my highest aspiration fresh out of seminary, right? Can any of you young guys identify with that, you know? And so, but whatever I had said was infuriating. Well, I think it was that I was at a mainline PCUSA church, and I did absolutely preach the authority of Scripture from the beginning. And so I think that's why he was actually angry. And so he said, we're not going to pay you, and... Those of you that know me know that I love to collect vacuum cleaners and give them to people and stuff, you know. I love vacuum cleaners. It's, it's my, my transcendent meaning in life. My, it's, yeah, oh, no. Nah. 
<laughs> I am not going to talk about my passion. I had to read George Marsden last night talking about Jonathan Edwards' passion. It just about made me you-know-what. All right, okay. Don't worry, passions are great. I just don't have them. And the reason I don't have them is I am them. <laughs> so anyhow, he, he was sitting facing me, and behind him in the corner of the office were two vacuum cleaners, or three, and I had bought them at a school auction. I'd heard that the school was having an auction the previous Saturday, so I went over and I found vacuum cleaners. And so I bid on them and bought them, you know? So they're in the corner of the office, and uh, I said to him, I said, Don, actually, I probably called him Mr., and I won't say his last name. I said, you know, I've been in the ministry now just a couple of months, and I want to tell you that I really, really miss cleaning. Because until a couple of months ago, I earned my living cleaning. And I said, the thing I love about cleaning is when you get done doing the job, you can look at what you've done and take pleasure from it. And I said, I don't get to do that as a pastor. And so if you stop paying me, I said, look over in the corner. You see those things? And he said, what? He looks over, what? And I said, look again. You mean the vacuum? I said, yep, the vacuum cleaners. I said, I just bought them at an auction at the, at the school district headquarters. And I said, I would love to have an excuse to start using them again. Because it would be honest work. And then I said this, but if I do, I will continue to preach to you. Why? Well, because people think that pastors love the church because they get paid. And it's not true. It's not true. It's not true. If you didn't pay me, I got TNT repairable. I've got my garden. I love to clean. I do landscaping. Right? If you'd let me use the tractor for it. My son and I share a tractor, so. But I've got the trailer, right? Listen, the church is beautiful. The church is worth us dying for. Every single time that you take a meal to a mother, every single time that you comfort a father, every single time that you work in the nursery when Pastor Bailey is sinning by going an hour and 40 minutes, and I am sorry. You're loving the church. And she's worth everything you give her. She's beautiful. She's just beautiful. And she belongs to Jesus. She does not belong to Tim Bailey. She does not belong to you. She is not here to stroke you. That's Facebook. The church is here to tell you the truth and to make you holy for heaven. And so you need to love her. Love her. I often think of who isn't, isn't present in services based on the, the temptations and sins and failures that they're going through in life. And it's amazing to see God's sovereignty working out and who is and isn't present in worship services. You know the old expression, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. 
And, you know, you can talk until you're blue in the face as a pastor, but if God's Holy Spirit is not at work in a person, they won't be present, and there's nothing you can do about it. You know, the church only has moral suasion. You know, the state can send an officer, and he will handcuff you and take you where you need to be, right? The church can only plead. And without the work of the Holy Spirit, what we do is absolutely... uh, hopeless. But when God adds his blessing to the work of the people of God, it's so beautiful. Uh, Somebody this morning, David Carell, was saying to me how beautiful it was yesterday watching the men work. And honestly, it was beautiful. Why? You know, well, uh, because when you see Brandon and Jeremy Chastine doing physical work, there's just something that just makes you laugh and shout at the same time. You know? Uh, the word incongruous comes to mind. You know, they, they both look like men that they should work with their mouths and their brains, right? Isn't that how they look? I mean, we don't want to be specific about this, but I mean, Really? And then you watch the, the fathers and the older men working with the young men. And you think, our children are growing up in the bosom of the church. And the things that we're willing to overlook in our children, guess what? Jared Cochran isn't. One of the things that gave me such joy yesterday, and this is, is, is looking out over the men, and then all of a sudden this... This, 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 this entity walks across the parking lot, and it was freezing cold yesterday morning, freezing. And here's this entity walking across the parking lot, just like a little soldier, you know? And he had shorts on, and he had, I think, a short sleeve shirt, no coat, no hat, no gloves, and no socks and no shoes. And he's just walking along like this across the parking lot. And I thought, a man in development. I took such joy in that man. I thought, what woman can I find to marry to that man? (laughs) It was so beautiful, and it it was Noah. And so I went over to his dad, and I said, that's a keeper. Because Jared was a goalkeeper. And, and I thought, that's a keeper. There's nobody that's going to stonewall Noah, you know. They can throw everything they have at Noah. Noah will be there. And this is the church in all her glory. Men are developing into men. Women are developing into women. Fathers are, are caring for children that didn't come from their own union, but others' people's. And, and, and then the children marry each other. Now, this is not because it's a commune. You know, J- J- Jody's dad yesterday was, was talking about that he and his family live in it, and he says, he says it like this. He says, we live in a, a community, right? All the family live to, in a commune. To, it's not because the church is a commune. It's because the church is, is held together by the blood of Jesus. And under the blood of Jesus, there's, there's no pride. There's no pride. There's no pride. There's no hostility. There's no bitterness. There's no jealousy. There's no envy. 
There's no impurity. There's no control. There's no authoritarianism. It's just sweet. Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. This is the church. So can you love her? Can you love her? I'm gaga over the church. And listen, I've been gaga over the church ever since when I first got married. I had long hair and a pierced ear, and my wife had a nose ring. And we went looking for churches in Madison, and we couldn't find one. You know, this one had an altar call every Sunday, and this one had this, 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 and this. And we just went from church to church. And meanwhile, we were reading Life Together by Bonhoeffer. And we hit this section where he says, God hates the visionary dreamer. God hates the man that judges every church by his own high standards. He said, if you have a church you can be a part of, thank God, because many people have never had that privilege. He said, if you have a church, love her. Well, we didn't have a church, but when we read that, we realized that we were in sin because we were judging the bride of Christ. And so we found this church, and if I were to tell you all the details of this church, your hair would stand on end. And we loved it. And ever since then, we've loved the church, and the church has provided for us, it's disciplined us, it's encouraged us, it's cared for us tenderly. What a sweet thing. Do you love the church? Do you love the church? You know, the church trumps your family. You may lose some of your children to apostasy. Your children might not love God. You know what happens when your children don't love God, don't you? They're not your children anymore. Jesus says that you must hate your family. A son who doesn't honor the father of his father is not a son. My father made this very clear to me. Why? Because the church is the bride of Christ. The only family that matters is the family of God because it's the only family that you will be in throughout eternity. So if you don't love the church, you best start. When the church gathers, you need to be there. Now, does this mean that you should not be involved in sports? You shouldn't be involved in uh, Facebook? Yes. No, no, I'm just kidding. What does Facebook take? Average of half an hour to 45 minutes of everybody's life? Or per day? Wait, per hour? No, wait. How much is it? I think it's half an hour. I think it's about 45 minutes a day. Yeah. And then you guys complain about the church taking time? At least when you're with the church, something good is happening. You're being sanctified. Have you ever heard of, of Facebook ever in any way sanctifying anybody? It flatters us. Give yourself to the church. About 10 or 12 years ago, I heard a man say that and it wasn't anybody from this church, but I heard he was a Christian leader. I heard him say that there's no better predictor of spiritual health in a person than a long-term steady commitment to a particular church. And that's true. I thought about it, and I've thought about it since.
And the fact is, when we commit ourselves to the bride of Christ and we love the bride of Christ, what happens is we ask forgiveness and we're forgiven. And there's no more sanctifying thing in this life than confessing our sin and being forgiven by representatives of God. Remember, Jesus says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosened. Love the church. Love the church. Don't love yourself. Love the church. People complain that the church, nobody's interested in them. Well, the reason nobody's interested in you is because you don't love the church. To have a friend, you have to be a friend. If you don't love the church, you judge her. Do you think the church is going to love you? No. Now, it will... But for, hopefully what it'll do is tell you you're failing. He is also the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. He's the head of the body, and he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Isn't that amazing to think that God is creating a new creation and that Jesus is the firstborn of the new creation. And that creation doesn't just have to do with people. It has to do with earthworms. It has to do with Antarctica. It has to do with cows. It has to do with poppies. It has to do with tomatoes and squash. Everything in the world is being renewed, and Jesus is the firstborn. Now, listen. Romance corrupts everything. You remember how a few weeks ago I talked about how romance corrupts the love of marriage? Because everybody has expectations that are just ridiculous about marriage. And then they think they must not have a good marriage because the romantic notion, ideal, they have. Well, the same thing is true when it comes to this world. You know, we think of this world being renewed and we think, well, it doesn't need renewal. What it needs is to get rid of man. And if we get rid of man, then the world's going to be green again, right? I mean, this is, you walk into a motel room and there's a little sign there and it says, save the world. How? Well, don't use the hand towel, right? You all have seen these signs, you know, save the world. The world has to be saved. How are we going to save it? Well, we're going to save it by us not using hand tools, I mean hand towels. We're going to save it by having battery cars. We're going to save it by uh Huh? Yeah, 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 that's the principal way everybody wants us to save the world is by not having children. Yeah. Listen, what's going to save the world? Does the world need saving? Yes, the world does need saving. Creation needs saving. We have this romantic view of creation, but let me tell you something. If my peach tree is allowed to do what it's trying to do right now, it will kill itself. It has so many little peaches this big that if I let all those peaches grow on that tree, that tree will, will just break. And so I'm supposed to do one of two things. Get on a ladder and pick off everything but once, one every six inches, which would mean hundreds of peaches I'm going to have to pull off. Or you can get a piece of wood and put like, 
like uh, styrofoam and stuff on the top of it and just, just start beating the snot out of that tree. And you'll, 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 you'll knock off about two-thirds of them. Now, which should I do? I think it's a good description of what it means to raise children. <laughs> don't worry, I don't mean it. Don't, I don't want your parents to take a poll to you. Don't worry. No. Well, how do we have this notion that the earth is perfect? It's not. Plants aren't perfect. Guess what? Squash doesn't grow in southern Indiana. I've learned this. I get disappointed every year, and I'm about to give up. <laughs> okay. Um, animals eat each other. Do you realize that when Adam sinned, Adam corrupted the earth? Do you realize he corrupted nature? And this is why it says what? Well, in Romans, there's a very interesting thing said that I think Green's piece and all the other people have never read. It says, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, and not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption. This is the Bible speaking of nature. It is a slave to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. This is an accurate statement of the condition of all of creation, of the peach trees, of the squash, of the tomatoes, of the poppies. Yesterday I wanted to put a poppy flower on my table. We had guests. But I was afraid to because I didn't know whether the poppy flower would sustain being cut. And if it wouldn't, I wasn't going to do it because that's my favorite flower in the world. And so I read on the internet and I found out that if you pick a poppy, within a couple of hours, all the petals will fall. I didn't know that. Even if I put it in water? And then it said, but there's a trick. You can take a match and put it under the bottom of the stem and just burn the snot out of that stem. And then it'll keep all of the liquids from coming out. And, the, the, and so it said, if you don't do that, it's a couple hours, it'll, it'll lose all of its petals. And so I burned the snot out of two of them. And this morning, they're still intact. Isn't that wonderful? And what Romans 8 tells us is that nature is a reflection of what? It's a reflection of our sin and of our redemption. Nature was not corrupted until Adam sinned. And when the sons of man are revealed, when you and I are in our glory, finally perfect, nature, the lion will lie down with the lamb. Okay? And so Jesus is the promise. Jesus is the witness to what is coming for the world, which is he's the firstborn over all creation, right? And we read here, he himself will come to have first place in everything. All of it is about Jesus. God created through Jesus. And when Adam sinned, God promised Jesus as the solution. 
And that's what we see coming next. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him, what? To reconcile all things to himself. Now, remember how I talked about romance destroying marriages and then romance destroying an accurate view of nature? Romance really has destroyed our understanding of ourselves, our understanding of our mothers and fathers, our understanding of people. Because we all think that we ought to think well of people and that when we think well of people, we're demonstrating that the Holy Spirit is at work in our hearts. And so the consequence in the church today is that nobody is real. No one's real. And everybody's desperately trying to hide who they are from their wife, from their children, and certainly from the church. This last week, somebody, I don't remember who it was, said in my hearing that what, what was needed was for people to be real. And I remembered that my father had written a poem, and the poem began, Lord of reality, make me real. And I think that's one of the most important things that the church needs today, is for us to be real. Now, being real doesn't mean showing everybody your scar. Hey, you want to see my scar? You know, it doesn't mean we go around and say the worst things we can about each other, but it does mean that we're unflappable, we're steady as she goes, we're okay with people sinning against us. We're okay with people asking us for forgiveness. We don't say, well, I don't need to forgive you for anything, which really is like the dude saying, you cheat on your income taxes. What that means is I don't think that I should have to ask you to forgive me for anything. Right? When people come and ask you to forgive them, And so when we hear this text, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the goodness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, we get a little uptight because we think, well, I don't think in terms of anybody, I don't think in terms of the world being at odds with God, being hostile to God, being enemies with God, people just need more education. But God sent his son Jesus to reconcile the world. So my dad said, Lord of reality, make me real. And then as I grew up, I had my father constantly quoting the scripture to all of us in the home, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And so in a home like that, you begin to see things accurately. Thank God that I didn't have Facebook when I was young. Where everybody lies. They lie with their pictures. They lie with their updates. They lie with their... Everything is. is it's just lies. It's posturing. It's like a, you know, 50, 13-year-old girls invented something that's like the sweet spot for their lives. Sorry. But you know how there's no group that is more controlled by peer influence than young teenagers, right? You all know this. I was reading this joke. 
And the joke is, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why, here's the joke. Why was the monkey lying dead on the ground under the tree? I think it's because he fell out of the tree. I think that's the answer. Why was the second monkey lying dead on the ground under the tree? No, no, you're close, you're close. Monkey see, monkey do. Why was the third monkey lying dead on the ground under the tree? Peer pressure. So you grew up in a home where the father says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, and you realize that your heart is desperately wicked. And you wonder to yourself, my mother loves me, does she know me? My father loves me, but he doesn't know me. You go to church, you sit under the preaching, and you think it's not for you because you're filthy. And you begin to despair. And then you read that one of the glories of Jesus Christ is what? He reconciles the world to his Father. And then you think, oh, I need reconciliation. I need reconciliation. Through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Having made peace through the blood of his cross. Let's let's think carefully about blood. Carefully. Is blood seemly? We all have it. Is blood something that we want to present when we meet somebody? You know, I wish I could have a bloody nose every time I meet somebody. When you're watching a basketball game and they show close up that actually blood's coming out so he needs to leave the game, does that make you feel good? Blood is embarrassing. It's always embarrassing. If you think of the woman who touched Jesus to be healed, it's hard to know whether her greater joy was that she no longer had to be embarrassed by constant bleeding or that she was healed. And I've always felt that the greater glory of that woman and joy was that she was now presentable in polite society. Why would it be that that the glory of Jesus Christ would be to reconcile the world to his Father through his blood. Why would it be through his blood? Yesterday I was walking into the church while we were working and I saw, and I'm colorblind so it may not have been blood, but I saw a bunch of stuff outside the doors on the concrete. It just looked like a bunch of blood to me. And by God's kindness, he's put in this church uh, young people of a certain age who are who who love to who love to do what they're asked, and there was one of them there. Her name was Cynthia, 
Spatey. Young men take note of this name. And I looked at her and I said, Cynthia, would you do something for me? Would you go into the deacon's or the, the, the janitor's closet? Would you get a bucket? And would you bring water out and would you scrub that blood off of the concrete? We don't want to see blood, do we? And yet, it's the glory of Jesus Christ that his blood reconciles me and you to his Father. It must be that we're in desperate condition if the only thing that can reconcile us to the Father is the blood of his Son. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. If you look through the hymnal of of the church, you will find endless songs that sing paeans of praise to the blood of Jesus. Now, ending with two things. Number one, how precious is the blood of Jesus to you? Here's what Scripture says about blood. It says, according to the law, one may almost say, this is Hebrews 9.22, all things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. You think of the things in your life that you wish that you could take back. The horrors. The things that when you're taking a shower in the morning, you let out an involuntary, oh! Just the memory of who you are. And then you think of the blood of Jesus, and it washes it. It's hard to believe. I have to tell you that many, many times I don't think God could possibly forgive me. But how precious is the blood of Jesus? What do you think the father thinks of his son who was obedient to death, even the death on the cross, who purchased the church? You know something? An awful lot of us have no joy. And let me tell you something. If you accurately understand the washing that you have been given by God through his son, there is no excuse for you not having joy. None. None. As a matter of fact, if you don't have joy, I question whether you belong to Jesus. How could you not have joy when you see that you've been washed with his blood? How could you not have joy? (laughs) If Brandon and Jeremy working physically is incongruous, it's really incongruous that in the eyes of God, you are spotless. It makes absolutely no sense when you know yourself the way you do. And yet the Bible says that God has reconciled the world to himself through the precious blood of his son. Right? 
And so why do you have no joy? Think of your condition. Your condition is forgiven and washed and clean through the blood of Jesus. Clean. Peace through the blood of his cross. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, listen, do you notice the word formerly there? You were formerly. Do you see the word formerly? If you continue to engage in your evil deeds and you claim to be a Christian, the truth is not in you. You are lying. There is a change when you are washed by the blood of Jesus and Scripture says, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. It does not mean you become perfect. But it means you live in joy and you are holy and that holiness outs. In the first service, I said that it doesn't mean that I am no longer an egotist and selfish and a narcissist and proud. But it does mean that I am no longer proud and narcissistic and an egotist because I'm in Christ and I'm a new creation. What it means is that if you think I'm narcissistic and proud and an egotist today, you should have met me yesterday. And if you don't like me today, just wait until tomorrow. It will be better. In other words, we have a trajectory because Christ is making us holy. His blood is not just transferred us from death to life, but it's also day by day removing our sins so that everybody looking at us sees that day by day we're becoming holy. Right? If you're not becoming holy, there's no hope for you. There's no hope. You can say all the right words, go to the right church, listen to the right, you can do everything you want to, but without the power of the Holy Spirit, you will continue to be in bondage to those things that should be past tense but are present tense. Don't let anybody fool you. Don't let anybody fool you. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation, Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Do you understand me? I do not want to stand before the judgment seat of God and have to give an account for flattering you. You must believe in the blood of Jesus because you are completely devastated by the sins of your heart. Do you understand this? It's mind-boggling to me that people in churches today think that you can be a Christian and never have despaired of yourself and thrown yourself on, in the dirt because of your sin. The most precious times in my life are those times where I, I commit terrible wickedness and all of a sudden I realize I don't want to do that and I throw myself on the mercy of God. 
And these are not things that just are happen once and then I'm a Christian and then it's victory and victory and everything tell the, you know, and day by day and the bright, you know, that's not my life. Is that your life? You know, some days I end up worse than I think I've ever been. And partly because I've preached. And, and am I myself going to be disqualified? One of the most intense convictions of sin I've ever had was turning on to Enright Road off Airport Road as I came to prepare to preach one Sunday morning. And I just despaired. Some of you remember me saying it in the sermon that day. This is like awful. We were, past tense, hostile to God in bondage to wickedness. If you are still hostile to God and in bondage to wickedness, you need to absolutely throw yourself, throw yourself in dust and ashes. Don't let anybody lie to you. There is no hope for you. You will be judged by God. Okay? I have warned you. I don't care if you're a member of this church. If you live in bondage to secret sin, you will be damned. And you will not be able to say that you're a member of Clear Note Church and that Max was your confidant. Do you understand me? You are not washed in the blood of Christ if you're not a new creation. So if you see and you realize you're not a new creation, you need to plead with God to give the anointing of his spirit so that you can be changed from death to life, okay? And then God will look down on you in your humility and brokenness and he will give you new life. And I testify that this is true. You will be a new creation. Finally, this. He has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. Death stands for his blood in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond approach. That's what he's doing to you. And then this little word. What's the little word? If. That's not nice of God. But undoubtedly, it's the Apostle Paul's fault. Well, not the Apostle Paul, just Paul. You know, Paul. Paul's the run that wrote if. If you continue. If you continue. Listen. No man having put his hand to the plow looks back. I always think of Bobby Knight with that. Where he was offered a job coaching, what was it, basketball and baseball or football. I don't remember which it was. And he had it in his mind that he was just going to be basketball. So he had, a, he had a job in hand, but it was coaching two sports. Nope, 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 nope. He was going to coach one sport, and it was going to be basketball. Who cares about basketball? But having put your hand to the plow, you must not look back if you continue. Listen, if you turn away from God, it's not because God didn't keep you. It's because you never belonged to him. If you continue, you will be saved. All those that the Father calls through the blood of his Son persevere to the end. 
They don't keep telling their conversion story when people ask them. They have today to talk about and yesterday to talk about and tomorrow. They're persevering. It's not a conversion story back when they were in vacation Bible school. It's today I live by faith. Today. So you remember that little word if. 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 If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast. So, shall we proclaim the Lord's death? Would that, is that what you'd like to do now? Would you like to show your faith in the blood of Jesus? Then let's come to the table, okay?